You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week we're concentrating on cardiovascular health. Later on, we'll hear from Tony Dellenboth about why he's queasy about atrial fibrillation. Before the drug was approved, advertisements were running on television telling patients to ask their doctors about atrial fibrillation. But before that, last week saw the British Cardiovascular Society's annual conference in Manchester. We were there for Heart, one of the BMJ sister journals, and thought that this chat between Keith Fox and Rory Collins about cholesterol and statins, given recent fears about myopathy, would be interesting for you, our audience. My name is Keith Fox. I'm a professor of cardiology and president of the British Cardiovascular Society. And I'm here with Professor Sir Rory Collins, and we're talking about cholesterol. So Rory, why is there still any debate about cholesterol in 2012? Well, I think in the past, we didn't have drugs or diets that really produced substantial reductions in cholesterol. And the trials that were done didn't generate clear evidence about the benefits, and there was a lot of controversy um, some 20 years ago. But since the statins became available, uh, and large trials of statins have been done, we've found really clear evidence of the benefits of lowering LDL cholesterol with statin therapy. Each one millimole reduction in LDL reduces risk by about one-fifth. The more you lower LDL, the bigger the reduction in risk. And we've seen clear evidence of benefits across the range of different types of patient, whether their cholesterol is high or medium or low, men and women, young and old, and in primary and secondary prevention. So the benefits are incontrovertible. Mm -hmm. So a clear and powerful message about even relatively modest reductions in LDL, and even better with bigger ones, having clinically important Uh, effects. And maybe one of the controversial areas, or what the areas that was controversial, is towards the lower end of the spectrum. In other words, how low cardiovascular risk is it still worthwhile to be on a statin? Yes, and so um, in the last few weeks, The Lancet uh, published the cholesterol treatments meta-analysis and update looking at the effects of lowering LDL cholesterol with statins, even among low-risk groups, people with 5 or 10% major vascular event risk, below the target levels of the current guidelines. And even among them, there was clear evidence of a reduction in the risk of major vascular events. And the absolute benefits, albeit smaller than for higher-risk individuals, really far outweighed uh, the side effects of statins, really the main side effect being being myopathy. Mm. You touched on myopathy, and one of the concerns is that people may overestimate the frequency of myopathy because myopathy occurs in the wider community, irrespective of what somebody's on. So there is at least a, a perception in primary care that myopathy is much more frequent than seen amongst the robust trials. Is that something you've come across? Yes, and in the randomized placebo-controlled trials where patients have been told at the beginning that the drugs, the statins, may cause muscle problems and to report them when they do, we've found that at each visit, some 5% of patients will report that they have muscle symptoms. But it's 5% in the placebo group and it's 5% in the active group. There's no difference uh, in reports of muscle symptoms, even with high doses of, of statin. Myopathy, 
so where you get muscle symptoms associated with elevations of creatine kinase are really very rare, about 1 per 10,000 per annum, with the standard doses of statin, such as 40 milligrams of simvastatin or of atorvastatin. Mm-hmm. So true myopathy rare. In the unlikely circumstance that somebody does get that, you've highlighted some quite innovative approaches that one might use combination therapy and can avoid uh, the myopathic signs and symptoms. Yes, although there was controversy about the benefits of lowering LDL cholesterol in the past, uh, if one looked at all of the pre-statin trials of the old drugs or diet or even ideal bypass surgery, um, lowering LDL by whatever means lowered coronary heart disease. And the more you lowered LDL and the longer you lowered LDL, uh, the bigger the reduction in risk. So we now have very clear evidence that statins safely lower LDL and produce big reductions in risk. Um, but I think one should be prepared to extrapolate to other LDL-lowering agents. And azetamibe is an obvious one. It's well-tolerated, no side effects really associated with it at all. And 10 milligrams of zetamibe is equivalent to three doublings of your statin dose. Now, we know in Caucasians that 20 to 40 milligrams of simvastatin, for example, really has very low rates of myopathy. Go up to 80 milligrams of simvastatin, and you start to see an increase, about a tenfold increase in myopathy. You can avoid that by combining 20 or 40 milligrams of simvastatin with azetamibe get a much bigger LDL reduction, but not be pushing your statin dose into a myopathic range. We're born with very low levels of LDL, and some uh, ethnic groups around the the world have very low levels of LDL. What do you think we're going to be seeing as objectives, as, as targets, five years from now? Well, yes. I mean, the rural Chinese, for example, um, had uh, LDL levels that were somewhere around one millimole per litre. And they had uh, coronary heart disease rates, which were about 5% of the Western rates. Uh, We see genetic experiments um, that are not so dissimilar. For example, PCSK9 null mutations that are are seen in um, Africans have uh, much lower uh, LDL, about a one millimole lower LDL throughout a lifetime. The studies of those suggest very substantial reductions in the risk of coronary artery disease. So... I think if one has to have a target for LDL, and personally I think one shouldn't, I think in terms of using lipid-lowering therapy, what you want to know is, is a patient at risk of cardiovascular disease? If there are enough risk that they're worth giving a statin to, give them the the highest well-tolerated dose and consider using azetamibe as well. Um, But if you were saying, what level of LDL should we be trying to get our population down to? One millimole wouldn't be a bad target. Okay, so that's a pretty ambitious target. There have already been hiccups along the way for some of the treatments, including some of the cholesterol ester transport inhibitors, but you've highlighted some exciting potential in new injectable agents. Yes, so PCSK9 is an example where there are um, subcutaneous agents now becoming available that uh, involve giving an injection every couple of weeks that produce very substantial reductions in LDL cholesterol, maybe 50 to 60% reductions. Interestingly, with some of those agents, even after you stop the treatment, the benefit will persist for several weeks, if not months, beyond the last treatment. So they look to have very long-term effects with intermittent uh, treatment. 
But I think even the CTP inhibitors are not dead by no means. Certainly torcetrapib, which produced, on the face of it, very promising changes both in LDL, big reductions, and in HDL, big increases. But torcetrapib increased blood pressure, mm. had other off-target effects, mm. um, and was associated with an increase in cardiovascular events. More recently, in the DAL outcome study uh, of dalcetrapib, that study was stopped because of apparent lack of benefit, but no safety signal. You might find it odd for me to say, but I think that's encouraging that there's no safety signal. And dalcetrapib produced no effect on LDL and only a small increase in HDL. So I think the newer uh, CTP inhibitors, anisetrapib and evocetrapib, which both reduce LDL substantially and increase HDL substantially and do not produce uh, blood pressure effects, allosterone effects, are well tolerated. These drugs still look very promising to me. So as a take-home message, we can apply the evidence that we've got now, and that will have a huge impact, but we're not at the end game yet. There's even more that could be achieved. Yes, and I think we need to be careful that concerns about the side effects of uh, the statins, which I think are massively overstated Mm. um, as a consequence, particularly of the MHRA's um, addition of things like erectile dysfunction Mm. and memory loss to the label, uh, which is really not supported by the evidence. We should not let those diversions uh, stop doctors from prescribing statins and patients from taking them. Right. That's the most important take-home message. Rory, thank you very much for joining us here. Thank you. That's just one of the podcasts recorded at the BCS conference. So if you're interested in cardiology, then you can check out more at the Heart website. That's heart.bmj.com. So sticking with the cardiovascular theme, I'm joined in the studio by Tony Delmoth, who's deputy editor of the BMJ and writes a regular column on the contrary. Thanks for joining us, Tony. A pleasure, Duncan. Now, this week, your column looks at atrial fibrillation, um, and you say it's a condition that in the UK affects 10% of patients over 75, and that if managed properly, could lead to 10,000 fewer strokes a year. So why has this drawn your attention this week? I suppose in my lifetime, atrial fibrillation has been a Cinderella condition. Nobody really paid it much attention at all. Then suddenly I started receiving invitations to high-level conferences, August bodies started meeting to draw up guidelines for atrial fibrillation. Um, Modules on the condition started appearing in educational programs. I was cycling past billboards, exhorting me to check my pulse and see my doctor if it was irregular. Later on, much later on in fact, I learned that the European authorities have licensed the first of a new class of drugs to stop strokes in atrial fibrillation. Um, And it all made sense. Not that I hadn't guessed it beforehand, I have to say. Sure. Um, And, you know, talk about those drugs. You said in your article that cardiology has been a drug development wasteland for a few years. Um, So now that these new classes of therapeutics, um, sort of alternative to warfarin, have come into the market, isn't it inevitable that you're going to hear more about it and that we'll be writing more about it in the BMJ? I think that's true. I think it was just just the the scale of the, the prior activity, which I thought was unseemly in this occasion. I really had the sense that here was, being, here was a market being rounded up and sort of 
sold off to the to the um, the manufacturers. Yes, and I suppose if we've seen it in the UK, in the US, and places like that, it must be even more acute. Yes, I mean, I, I don't know if it's more flagrant in the UK. In the article, I quote a journalist from Forbes Business Magazine, who said that even before a panel of Food and Drug Administration experts met to look at this particular drug. Boehringer was pitching reporters on a meeting with soap actress Susan Lucci and her husband, who has atrial fibrillation. Before the drug was approved, advertisements were running on television telling patients to ask their doctors about atrial fibrillation. Um, it, it doesn't really seem quite right to me in a way. Hmm. We, we talk about overdiagnosis for loss in the BMJ. You know, we had a, a whole theme article on it. Is this another item, to think, do you think, to, to add to our sort of watch list? There's, there's no doubt that atrial fibrillation exists and that people who are diagnosed that really have their condition. And if they do have atrial fibrillation, then they are at a genuinely increased risk of strokes, which can be, as you will know, catastrophic mm. for the person who suffers them. So this isn't about overdiagnosis. You know, as you said in your article, you're left feeling queasy that the explosion of interest in atrial fibrillation has occurred only now that big profits are in the offing. That pretty much sums up how modern medicine works, especially when it comes to sort of drug treatments. Um, you must feel queasy quite often. Um, I do feel queasy often. I think in, in these situations, what I get more than my own sense of queasiness is a sense of desperation in the people who make the products that are coming onto the market. It costs upward of a billion dollars to get a new drug onto the market. Uh, you've got to sell an awful lot to recoup that investment. Um, You've got to make sure that that you're reaching as many people in your potential market as you possibly can, and this is obviously the way to do it. Um, and inevitably, a proportion of those new drugs, they'll be, they'll be found to have problems and be taken off the market again. So when you're risking investment on the scale that manufacturers are, I mean, I I see it as as um, sheer sort of commercial imperatives to to, to maximise the market and maximise their profits while the going's good. Absolutely. So this is kind of inevitable, really. I suppose so. It's particularly a problem when the, the pipelines of many of the big drug manufacturers are running so dry that there are fewer and fewer potential blockbusters coming along. So when there is a genuinely new class of drugs to, um, to diminish the risks of, of stroke and atrial fibrillation, then you know, they see this as a, as, a, as a possible goldmine and have to go for it. As the the um, financial analysts have been saying this new class of drugs could be worth between 14 and $20 billion a year. Um, and there are a lot of people who want a slice of that action if it genuinely exists. Absolutely. Well, we certainly will be hearing more about it, more and more about it. Um, Tony's article is now available uh, online and in this week's print journal. So have a look there. Thanks, Tony. Thanks, Duncan. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be back with an update on herpes encephalitis. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.